Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Good to see everybody this morning, and uh, welcome to worship. And what an opportunity to be able, from this great experience of praising God with our hearts and with the fruit of our lips, to be able to now turn our attention to the precious Word of God, which is such a great gift. Would you not agree? And to listen to God for a few moments this morning. Worship is two ways. It's our communion with Christ, and it's our risen Lord's communion with us. And I'm thankful that we have the Word of God to be able to delve deeply within. We're in a new series of messages these days at Hillcrest from Paul's primary letter, the first one I believe that he ever wrote, which is his letter to the Galatians. We're calling this series The Essential Gospel. I'm going to drill down deep to uncover the true riches of the most important part of our Christian faith, which is our understanding of and the impact that we've all experienced by the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To those of you that are guests this morning, welcome. <clears throat> so grateful to have everybody with us here in this room today at the corner of Nine Mile and Guiding. And to those of you that are worshiping with us online, wherever you are this morning, whatever state or country even that you're in. And isn't it a blessing to be able to welcome people from other parts of the world? We do every week. And we're very grateful, wherever you may be, that you're taking time, some of you in the wee hours of the evening, uh, to worship the Lord together with us at Hillcrest. We're very, very grateful this morning. Let's take our Bibles and come to Galatians chapter 1 again today, the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And as we do... One of the things I think that is obvious from a cursory reading of the New Testament, the ministry of Jesus and the discussion of the Spirit-filled life that comes by the apostles and the gospel writers of the New Testament, is that generally speaking, Christian people are supposed to be nice, generally speaking, right? That is to be the default of our walk with Christ, empowered and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You say, well, pastor, what leads you to make a statement like that? The fruit of the Spirit is kindness. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. All of these that come to us through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, as indeed we shall see in the latter days of this very study from Paul's letter to the Galatians reflect a transformed heart and a transformed life <clears throat> and a transformed mind. As Paul will say to the Romans, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And a renewed mind leads to renewed outlook, a renewed course of living. And so generally speaking, we're supposed to be kind, loving, tender, gentle people. But having said that, there are some things, indeed, I can go further than that. There ought to be some things that make God's people become angry. One of my New Testament professors said something years ago that I've never forgotten. He said, if there are some things in life that do not make you, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, angry, you are without a doubt lacking in moral integrity. I've never forgotten that. So there are some things that <clears throat> do, in fact, rile us up and should. 
There are some things that will cause us from time to time to speak out. Now, here's the thing. Are you all with me this morning? Amen. That doesn't give anybody an excuse to act like the devil when they're angry or to default back to the way life was when you were still living in darkness. We ought to always look and, and act and reflect the fruit of the Spirit that should mark us as the very people of God. But while generally speaking, God's people are supposed to be loving, gentle, kind, nice, the Bible also teaches that we are engaged in a battle. There is such a thing as spiritual warfare. We're engaged in it. But we wrestle not uh, according to the ways of the world. But we wrestle in terms of the spirit. We battle with spiritual weaponry. That encourages us that even in times where we get angry for all the right reasons, even when we contend for the truth and contend for the truth we must in these important days, we ought to always look like our risen Christ when we do it. Amen. Now, this is exactly what we see coming from the Apostle Paul in one of the Bible's most astonishing passages. This is one of those passages in the Bible just kind of stands out in the New Testament among all of the rest. It's one of those passages where Paul indeed becomes a little warm and he takes off the gloves. And you know why? Because he needs to contend for something that's a matter of truth, namely the gospel itself. Pay very careful attention to the language of the Apostle Paul as we read this passage this morning, beginning in Galatians chapter 1 and verse number 6. The reason I encourage you to do that is because right here you have the fundamental reason why we have Paul's letter to the Galatians recorded in the Bible in the first place. Y'all ready to read? It should be on the screen. Why don't we read it out loud together? Everybody reading together. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Father, we pray this morning as we hear and listen to these strong words of the great apostle Paul, that you'll help us to be enlightened today over things that matter, indeed things that matter the most, and help us to be willing to be courageous in a world of compromise, to stand firm and to stand fast for the things that really matter eternally in life. Help us always to be willing to contend for the one and only gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Well, I'd say the apostle Paul's a little unhappy here, wouldn't you? I mean, normally it's at this point in his letters, those of you that were with us last week know that we kind of gave a little introduction to Paul's letter to the Galatians from the first five churches, and, uh, first five verses, and it's normally at this point 
where the apostle, as is his uh, usual custom, delivers a word of thanksgiving, where he says something along the lines of, I just love you so much. Y'all are just the greatest thing in the world. He'll usually at this point in his letters pause and give a word of thanksgiving, uh, maybe uh, pronounce a word of grace, maybe even offer a prayer uh, on the part of these people, most of whom in the New Testament were people that he had visited at one time or another, but not here. No pleasantries, no warmth, no praise, no small talk. He simply begins the main body of the letter with these three words, I am astonished, and then pronounces not one, but two curses. Let him be accursed. And it's at this point, Paul drops the mic and walks right off the stage. So he's not happy, right? And this is a tone that he's going to carry throughout the rest of the letter for the most part. We'll eventually arrive at the first part of chapter 3. And Paul will, after having spent a little bit of time reflecting on some personal things in the first two chapters, he'll then get back to matters of theology. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he'll look back at the Galatians and say these words, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? J.B. Phillips, in a translation that he uh, issued in the 1950s, renders the first part of that statement with these words, Oh, dear idiots of Galatia. The word foolish is the Greek moros. Literally, what he says is they're old, dear morons of Galatia. And it just reflects once again that Paul's not happy. What in the world's going on, man? What's gotten under Paul's skin? What has become a burr in the Apostle Paul's saddle? Well, as many of you probably know, Paul gotten word about a very disturbing trend that was taking place in the Galatian churches, a trend that's left him amazed and frankly a bit dumbfounded and uh, not in the positive sense either. Let's look at this passage today as we kind of go through it line by line from three different angles. First of all, I want us to notice what the problem is. Because there is a very clear problem that all of us need to understand to properly interpret Paul's letter to the Galatians. And the problem, of course, is the potential compromise on the part of the churches there in Galatia. Potential compromise by the church. And that was indeed the case. The church was on the verge of a full-fledged theological retreat. And that's evidenced in the language of verse 6. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, of course. And at the heart of this opening salvo, of course, is the phrase, the gospel, the gospel. That's why we're entitling this series, The Essential Gospel. Because this is a word, gospel, that Paul uses throughout all 13 of his letters over 60 times. Four times it's used just in this little passage that we've read this morning. Gospel, of course, is a word that means good news. It means to announce or to herald that which is good. And the gospel, of course, is the very heartbeat of the preaching ministry of the Apostle Paul and the apostles of the New Testament. The gospel is good news because of what it announces. 
It announces the good news, not of what humans can do for God, but the good news of what God has done for low, sinful, proud, corrupted, depraved human beings. God has done something on behalf of spiritually lost people to bring them back to life again, to literally raise them from the dead as the songs that we've sung this morning clearly articulate. The gospel announces the good news of what God has done for depraved, spiritually lost people through the work of Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The, the gospel that announces the reality that human beings like us, even though we're warped and we're sinful and we're twisted and we're depraved, and we are indeed, as it relates to our relationship with God, D-E-A-D, we are very dead. The gospel announces that there's hope, and it's hope based on the work of Christ alone. It's hope that's received into a person's life, not by doing anything, not by doing anything, not by doing a cotton-picking thing. It's hope that's received in a sinner's life through the expression of simple faith and adding nothing to that whatsoever. No contribution on the part of the offender it is the gospel of God's amazing grace. And never forget, and I'll say this many times throughout this series, grace is the operative word in Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you want to boil Galatians down to one word, it's G-R-A-C-E. Grace is the operative word in Paul's letter to the Galatians because you can't have a gospel apart from the grace of God. And it's the purity of that gospel of God's grace and the very future of the churches themselves that are at stake in South Galatia. And that's what has Paul so frustrated and so very angry. Paul's obviously surprised at how quickly the Galatians were turning away from the purity of the gospel. He uses the language of desertion here. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are shifting to another gospel. And the thing that had Paul so amazed was how quickly that transformation had taken place. Paul is writing his letter to the Galatians probably sometime between a year and a year and a half after his first missionary journey. And so all of us know how quickly a year, 18 months goes by. Isn't that right? And he's probably thinking in his mind, I, just, I was just there. I spent time among you. I even backtracked to spend more time with you. And we made it very clear what it is that saves a person and that salvation is based solely on the grace of God and that all you have to do as a sinful person is to believe. You trust not what you can do for God, but what God has done for you in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting the purity of that gospel. Now, the thing that provides hope here is that Paul uses kind of progressive tense verbs, not past tense verbs. He doesn't say, I am astonished that you have so quickly deserted. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting. In other words, it's an ongoing kind of thing. The deed hadn't been done completely yet. But Paul has been made aware that there are corruptors among them and that there is a turning that has gone on on the part of some of them, though it hasn't completely wiped out 
the church as he knew it and the church as he had founded it. But he also knows there's no doubt that these people are on the verge of becoming what we might call spiritual turncoats, spiritual traitors who are abandoning the most important aspect of their faith, which, by the way, will leave them with no faith at all. But where are they to go? I mean, if they abandon the one true gospel, and part of the reason that Paul is writing them the letter to the Galatians is to ask them the question, if you abandon this gospel, where in the world are you going to go? You remember the old song, the old spiritual, where could I go? Oh, where could I go seeking a refuge for my soul, needing a friend to heal me in the end? Where could I go but to the Lord? And Paul won't say, you're going to desert this. You're not only deserting the gospel, he makes it very clear, you are deserting him. I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by his grace. You desert him, where, oh where, are you going to go? Because there is no place else to turn. And the reason there's no place else to turn is that there's only one gospel. And it's the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. When Judy and I lived in Branson, Missouri, many of y'all have been to Branson, one theater after another, kind of the entertainment capital of the Midwest. And we used to go to a lot of shows. We were residents there. And so most of the time we just showed them a driver's license. They'd let you go in free. Amen. Great place to live because you never ran out of stuff to do. Cheap. And there was a theater there called the Legends Theater. Anybody ever been to the Legends Theater? You know what's at the Legends Theater are acts performed by legendary people, most of whom are very dead. And so these are imitators that get up, right? So you have a Cher imitator, and of course you have an Elvis imitator, and maybe you've got a Hank Williams imitator, you know, one right after another, six or eight of them. And here's the thing. It's a pretty good show. It's an entertaining show. I'd spend a free night to go to the show. I might even pay 5 or $10 to go to that show. But here's what I know, having been to that show more than once, it's not the same as the real thing. How many times have you actually seen an Elvis impersonator that didn't make you giggle? I, they're not the same thing. I get tickled. I go to Nashville where I'm from and I'm a fan of the Grand Ole Opry and I'll go to the Grand Ole Opry and some newcomer will come out there and try to sing a Loretta Lynn song. And it's a joke. I mean, it's pretty. They sound like a nightingale. But if you ever heard Loretta Lynn sing, she sings from down here. And it just comes erupting out like a volcano with power. And you can't imitate that, right? And that's kind of what Paul is asking to the people here. Where are you going to go? There is no other gospel. You can't set any other imitative gospel along the real thing and get anything akin to life. Because there's only one. And it's the gospel of grace based on the work of Christ alone. Now, Paul knows that everybody up there in these churches of South Galatia, the four main cities of South Galatia, are all new believers. All of y'all were a new believer at one time, 
And most of us in the room today know new believers, and we know that by definition, new believers are not mature in their faith. And new believers can be very gullible to compromise teaching when they hear it because they're just not well-schooled yet in the Word of God. And how many times have we known people that have been quickly tested? They come to Christ, and they get saved, but then their faith is tested, and many times they'll buy into something that's just not true. And what was happening here in South Galatia is not the first time that this has happened to new believers. In fact, it's as old as the people of God themselves. You go back, for example, to the 32nd chapter of Exodus. How many of you remember reading the story of the golden calf, right? So the people of Israel been led by Moses out of 400 years of Egyptian bondage, led them out by the grace of God. What did those people do? to deserve getting out, nothing. What did they do themselves to liberate themselves from 400 years of Egyptian bondage? Zero. They had no power. They were totally dependent on the sovereign grace of God to show up and to deliver them. And God did in a very gracious way. And Moses led them out, led them through the Red Sea, led them through the wilderness, provided water from a rock, provided manna on the ground. And they finally get to Sinai. And Moses goes up to the mountain. He was up there for a long time and the people began to fear thinking that Moses was very dead himself. And the first response on the part of the people of Israel who did not yet possess a fully mature understanding of God was to fear. And all it took was a corrupt teacher or teachers to come in there and convince them to do something that was very anti-gospel and anti-God. Look at Exodus 32 and verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people. Notice he doesn't say my people. <laughs> your people, because they were not doing good things. Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. God's ready to do some work on these people. Your people have corrupted themselves. And then watch verse 8. For they have turned aside what? They have quickly deserted. It's virtually the same language. They have quickly deserted from the way that I commanded them. You remember Moses came down carrying the tablets of the law of God. And what happened? Moses got hot. Moses got angry, threw those tablets down. And God judged the people. Here the same thing happens in Galatians 1. Paul gets word about the potential compromise of the people. Paul gets angry about the potential compromise of the people. Then he fires off. He doesn't throw tablets to the ground, but he fires off an urgent letter because he knows there's sin in the camp. And where sin is left in the camp to do its thing, disaster will soon inevitably follow. And the reason for the urgency here is Paul because Paul knew that eternity was at stake. He, listen, you play, you play fast and loose with the gospel and people go to hell. And you see that in the language that he uses. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting God, the one who called you. Now that puts the desertion in personal terms, doesn't it? Because the gospel can be kind of a, it can be kind of an impersonal concept to some people. But you can never divorce the gospel from God. 
In fact, Paul calls it that in his letter to the Romans, doesn't it? The gospel of God. It's God's gospel because God's at the heart of it. And to desert the gospel is to desert God himself. Now, does it make any sense at all that Paul wouldn't waste a lot of time with small talk? Because eternity's on the line for a lot of people. He has to stop the bleeding because this is the most important element of faith. He has to stop the bleeding and he has to preserve the integrity of what he knows to be the absolute truth. That's the problem. Everybody tracking with me? Does that make sense? This is the problem. Potential compromise on the part of the church. And with that in mind, we're now informed secondly of the cause. What's caused all this mess? Well, the cause is people. Misguided troublemakers, as we're told in verse 7. There are some who trouble you and who want to what? Say it out loud. Want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's right. Paul doesn't identify exactly who these people are, but I'm pretty confident he knew exactly who they were. We typically refer to them as Judaizers. I think I mentioned that last week for those of you that were here. They were self-proclaimed Christians who were born Jews, so they were ethnic Jews, like Paul, like Peter, like James and John. They were ethnic Jews who had somehow made a profession about Jesus Christ. They had probably migrated their way up from Judea, the area around the city of Jerusalem. And here's the thing. They would have gotten there to South Galatia. They had worked their way to Antioch first, and we know that they were there in Antioch for reasons you'll find out here in just a few weeks. But they probably migrated a little bit further north into that region of South Galatia. And when they got there, they would have made a connection with the Christian churches as self-proclaimed Christian people. They would have likely been baptized members of the church in Jerusalem likely would have championed the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Man, if they were here this morning, they would have sung all the songs that we uh, sang together this morning, and they would have clapped along with us at the very end of the song because they would themselves have declared that Christ was the very Son of God and in the flesh and that he died on the cross, and they probably would have had a profession that basically said, in order to be saved, you have to confess your sins and trust Christ to save you. They would have said all of that. And if they had stopped there, everything would have been coming up roses in South Galatia. But they didn't stop there. Instead, they declared something that was radically different from the preaching of the Apostle Paul. They took things further than that. And they began to take additives, A, B, C, D, and add it to the requirements of the gospel. Namely, things like circumcision, ceremonial customs of Moses, the food laws as we know them in the Old Testament. And so they demanded that all of those Gentiles submit to circumcision as a condition of being saved and that they follow the Mosaic legislation in terms of all of the ceremony and all of the moral law as well, ceremonial and moral, all of it you got to adhere to in addition to trusting Christ as the divine Son of God. 
who died on the cross. Now, as I said a moment ago, we know these people, or at least some like them, had appeared earlier in Antioch because there's a similar controversy that takes place just after Paul's first missionary journey. Luke records it in Acts 15.1. Take a look. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are what? Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, watch the language, you cannot be saved. So it's couched in the language of impossibility. And that's the fundamental issue. Gentiles could become Christians, yes, but they had to first become Jews as a condition of salvation. Got to become like us, these people said. So, as we said last week, I'll say it again today, we'll be saying it all the time. This is a Christ plus gospel, not the gospel of Christ alone. I'm glad we sang that song this morning, in Christ alone, because that's the position of the Apostle Paul here, but not these false teachers. They may have had a problem with the Christ alone song, frankly, because with them it was Christ plus. And that's what has the Apostle Paul so incensed, because it's misguided teaching. It's false teaching. It's no gospel at all, and he makes that very clear. And let me just say this about false teachers. Do you all believe false teachers still exist today? All over the place. This is why you got to be in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, why you need to be in a disciple group, why you need to be in a connect group, why you need to feed yourself daily on the Word of God. It's all of that stuff. Because by doing that, you help protect and defend and deserve the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're able to recognize fact from fiction in the kingdom of God because you've spent so much time in the real thing, in the word of God. False teachers always do two things. First, they create confusion. They sow seeds of confusion. These men, the Bible says, were troubling the Galatians, troubling that's a word that means to shake or to agitate. It's the same word used of Jesus Christ when he's struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus said as he prayed there the night of his arrest, the night before his crucifixion, my soul is deeply troubled, shaken, stirred up, agitated. You know what an agitator does in the washing machine. It keeps the clothes all stirred up, right? That's what's happening here, and that's what false teachers do. They, they break up the unity of the body. They cause a fracturing because they come in and they shake everything up. And the end result is not confidence. The end result is confusion. And by the way, notice that this isn't coming from outside the church. This confusion is coming from within the church, as is the case almost always with false teaching. I've almost never in over 30 years of ministry, had trouble from my community. Almost never. Almost never. I mean, occasionally you want to build something and you've got to go before a governmental institution and they got to grant you this or grant you that. Sometimes they don't really want to do that, but it's not because they hate you. They usually have other reasons for that. Sometimes it might be, but most of the time trouble comes from inside, just as it does here. John R. W. Stott writes these words in his book on Galatians, the greatest troublemakers or the church's greatest troublemakers now as then are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, 
but those inside who try to change the gospel. That's a good word because that was exactly the case here and it still is today. So false teachers create confusion. Secondly, they twist the gospel. That's how they create confusion because they somehow twist the gospel of Christ. The ESV here that we've read uses the word distort. They distort the gospel of Christ. And you could translate that in a number of ways. It can mean to change. It can mean to confuse. It can mean to reverse. It can mean to twist into something that's no longer recognizable. That's what the false teachers were doing. They were changing the gospel so that you couldn't, the, the gospel as we understand it wasn't recognizable anymore. And Paul knew the gospel, and so when he heard what was being taught, he instantly recognized it as a changed gospel, as a distorted gospel. And listen, you need to be able to do that too. That's why you better be in the Word, and you better be in an abiding relationship with God, and you better be accountable with your faith. It's one of the values of going into a small group of some kind where the gospel is discussed. You don't get to talk back in here. Security will take you out. But this is not the only way of learning. You go into connect group, discussion is encouraged, and you need to be uh, free to, to share what you think about a particular passage of Scripture, but you also need to be free to have somebody say, I'm not sure that's true. Here's what I think about this. That's accountability, and that's actually a good thing. It keeps us from wandering too far off the path. These people were buying into a twisted gospel, a changed gospel, no longer a free gift based on faith, but an achievement, something you had to earn by something that you had to do, something that you had to keep up with. Now, let me just say this morning, there are some things we have to do as followers of Christ. Morality is important. Ethics are important. The Sermon on the Mount is all about Christian behavior, for crying out loud, but not as a way to curry favor with God, not as a way to be saved. Ethical teaching in the Bible is always for redeemed people who have been transformed by the free gift of God's grace. You're saved by faith, and then you come to an understanding, I'm saved in order to do good works. One leads to the other. One is not a cause for the first. And that's important. None of that stuff can save you. In fact, all the good things in the Bible, here's the thing. You can do all the good things in the Bible, and they can keep you out of jail, but they can't keep you out of hell. Only Jesus can keep you out of hell. And Jesus may actually end up causing you to go to jail, <laughs> for that matter, but thank God he can keep you out of the eternal place of condemnation. And he's the only one that can do it. That's why it's so important to trust him. We need righteousness. That's what we're missing. And only Jesus can give it to us. You'll never hear, odds are, you'll never hear anybody in this pulpit talk that much about circumcision. You'll never hear in your Sunday school class, your connect group, you got to be circumcised in order to be saved. That, I can almost say that will never happen at Hillcrest. But there are lots of other false gospels, lots of other things that are additives to the gospel. Y'all could probably name them. 
family values. Good stuff, but it can't save you. Material prosperity, health and wealth, right? That becomes for a lot of churches, that's the gospel. But it's corruptive. Religious tradition can take the place of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dare I say it, political alignment. Many people more concerned about that than they are the gospel of Christ. It's not a substitute for the God. All of those things are good things. There are right behaviors. There are right beliefs. But they're not the gospel. And they can't save anybody. And so we never want to dilute the gospel. We never want to distort the gospel. We never want to corrupt the gospel. Because when that happens, as Paul will say later to the Galatians in chapter 5, it's at that point that a church has fallen away from grace. He'll use even more severe language. You have severed yourself from Christ. That's tough talk. But he's absolutely right. And all of that helps to explain finally the response. And the response, of course, that we end up with here in Galatians 1 is an angry apostle. We go from, watch the progression, from a corrupted gospel to a confused church to a cussing preacher. Oh my. That's one thing that preachers fear more than anything else is accidentally cussing in the pulpit. <laughs> I have nightmares about it. One of two things that either happen. You either have a very understanding church that will slap you on the back and say, he's like us. <laughs> or you'll get fired that afternoon. One of the two. <laughs> one of the two. I don't use foul language and never have, but Lord knows I've been around it. You know what I'm saying? And I'm going to be one of these decrepit old people that nobody wants to go see, probably. You never want that to happen in the pulpit. But Paul pronounces a double curse. And the strongest language he uses anywhere in the Bible. See, he moves from astonishment at the beginning of the passage to severe rebuke at the end of the passage. Verse 8. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be, say it out loud, accursed. Harsh. One of the harshest statements in the New Testament. And Paul kind of goes to cussing in the pulpit, repeating it twice for emphasis. And he, the interesting thing about that is he doesn't leave anybody out. He doesn't even leave himself out, does he? If I go crazy and start doing this, may I be accursed? Even if Peter does it, even if, even if James or John, pillars in the church at Jerusalem, even if they do it, if the Judaizers do it, and then he goes so far out, even if an angel from heaven supernaturally appears in your midst, claiming to be proclaiming the gospel, and they give to you this contra-gospel that's not the gospel you heard from us, even let the angel be accursed. Let them be anathema is the Greek word. 
which is an English word. It's a transliterated word right from the Greek text. Let him be eternally condemned. May God send him straight to hell. That's what he says. And why would Paul say something that harsh? Because he knows that those false teachers, not only themselves, are under a curse. They're taking innocent people straight to hell with them. That's what a false gospel does. It takes people away from God and leads them to everlasting condemnation. And Paul knows to buy that theological snake oil is to condemn yourself to a life eternally separated from all that's good, all that's righteous, all that's holy, all that's God. I mean, what the false teachers were doing the gospel would be like, and I should have brought one up here this morning, be like me taking a glass of pure water and out of my pocket pulling a medicine vial with an eyedropper in it containing liquid arsenic and taking a couple of drops of that clear liquid and dropping it into the pure, pristine water that had been through a Brita filter. And just those couple of drops mixed in, you can't smell it, you couldn't taste it, you can't see it. But to drink that water would not refresh you. It would kill you. And that's why Paul pronounces a curse. Not once, but twice. It's a reminder to the Galatians of something that Paul would later remind the Corinthians, the absolute truth that there is no foundation. No other foundation can be laid except the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's a key question to ask, by the way, regarding churches. Key question to ask about Christian pastors, Christian leaders, Christian teachers, is this simple question. Y'all still with me? Say amen. Here's the key question. Are they preaching the gospel of Christ? That's what you want to know most of all. If I'm moving to a new town, I'm looking for a church, that's the fundamental question I want to know about that church. Are they committed to the pure truth of the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ plus nothing else? You know why that's so important? Because listen, finding everlasting life with God's not like going down to Walmart or Target and buying a toothpaste or buying a deodorant. You can get confused in Walmart and Target trying to figure out what toothpaste to buy because there's 1,800 varieties. All these different varieties of deodorant. Here's the thing, every one of them going to get your teeth clean and every one of them probably going to keep you smelling halfway good. But you can't approach God like that because all varieties are not the same. There's only one that will give you everlasting life with God and purpose and meaning in this life until we get there. And that is the gospel of grace based on the work of Christ plus nothing else. That's the gospel. Only one path will do. You know why? Because there's only one gospel. And it centers on Jesus Christ, who alone has the power to save. And let me just say, as we conclude, he doesn't need any help from you 
or from me. So God, give us clarity about the gospel of Christ and may we never retreat from it until we're forever with the Lord. This is God's word and let all who agree say amen this morning.